You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 23, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're a repeat listener, thank you so much for coming back. If you're not, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss a single episode. It comes out weekly and it's free. Today's episode is with Twyla Brace, an expert on electronic health records and HIPAA. I want to point out that I received her book only about maybe a week before this episode uh, was recorded, and also that right as I was getting ready to record this episode, about, mm, let's say, an hour and a half before, I had an eye exam, which would not be that big a deal, except I had my eyes dilated. And it turns out that when your eyes are dilated, it is really hard to read. <laughs> and so my prepared questions, my ability to reference things was really a struggle. So it's kind of funny looking back on it now. And I will have to add that to my list of things I should not do right before I podcast. But all that aside, I want to remind you to please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash the paradox. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. There you can, of course, become a regular subscriber, get new bonus material, which I'm adding weekly. All the money raised there goes towards the production and promotion of the show. So today we're going to talk about HIPAA and the fact that it does not protect your privacy. We're going to discuss Twyla Braze's book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, which I think kind of gives you an idea, sort of the direction of the show. Most people think that HIPAA protects their privacy and protects physicians and other medical care personnel from releasing your information or giving away your data or selling it, and it turns out that is exactly the opposite. We're going to get into that a little bit more. I would highly recommend Twyla's book, which is excellent. And as we'll talk about it during the show, it has actually been confused on Amazon by some as a textbook, which I don't know, maybe some people are using it as a textbook in some universities. All the show notes information will be found at theparadox.com slash 023. Again, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on this episode on HIPAA with Twyla Braze. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm here with Twyla Braze, who is the author of a brand new book. Well, pretty new, right? Yep. Two months. 
two months. That's that's pretty new for books. <laughs> the office I talked to, it's not nearly that long. Um, but we're going to talk about her book. But uh, Twyla is a, a registered nurse, a president and co-founder of the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, certified public health nurse. She provides commentary for the Health Freedom Minute and testimony at state legislatures, meets with members of Congress, speaks around the country. She's been interviewed on Fox, CNN, NBC, Today Show, and among other places, and is quoted in numerous publications like the Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and other places. So, Twyla, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, today, we're going to talk about HIPAA. And uh, your book, which is called Big Brother in Exam Room, which is not a flattering title if you're a big brother. So <laughs> clearly, clearly, it's an ominous, an ominous uh, title. I would say that probably the, the bulk of the book focuses on electronic health records and sort of technology in the exam room and within medicine. And then we're going to talk about just one part of that, but there's a lot more to the book than what we're going to discuss today. That's true. I mean, I don't know exactly what we're discussing today, but there's a lot to the book. I have been told that, I mean, it's on Amazon, it's been number one twice so far that I know of. Um, in the textbook uh, category um, for medical records and, and um, medical history. And so there is definitely history in there, including why we're in the place that we are in healthcare today and why we are facing Big Brother in the exam room today, uh, having a lot to do with legislative history. And that's funny because I'm sure you didn't set out to write a textbook. <laughs> so. No, and it's, it's not a textbook. You know, no, the, I know it's not. That's surprising. That's a category. <laughs> I know because I know Amazon picks the category. We don't get to pick the category. Um, so it was number one new release in the first two weeks in the privacy and surveillance book category. That seems, you know. That seems appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> but somehow, apparently, people who are buying textbooks must be buying this book so that they somehow decided to categorize it there. Okay. Well, I mean, I have to say, I, I've read, I'll admit, I have not read the whole book. I read the, the portion we're going to discuss today about the lady HIPAA, but also a number of chapters on the uh, uh, electronic health records. I mean, well-researched, there's a ton of information. It's, it's dense in some ways. And I can certainly see how it sort of could be used as an authoritative reference for people who are learning about learning about the policies with electronic health records and sort of the, I'm sure, you know, how we got to where we are. It's probably a good way to, to kind of get into that sort of topic. Yes, I think that um, I call the book Evergreen in that I do not think it will ever get old because it, it shares the history of the electronic health records. It, it shares the history and different laws that got us here. It's got a timeline of laws at the end to show how third parties took control of the exam room. Uh, it's got 1,500, more than 1,500 endnotes to make it credible because there's a lot of stuff in there that people don't know and they've never heard before. And I need them to know that it's true and that they can go and look up the sources themselves. Right. And which I guess takes away a little bit into the fact of the book, because it is a big book. Um, and because there's just a lot of stuff in it, but I would say it's very easy to read. I mean, it was, uh, it was not like it did not, it didn't seem like a textbook. I guess. Yep. Um, <laughs> That's what we've heard. That's time and time. Even the publishing manager, she wanted to read it before it went out and, She's like, I'm surprised. I actually understood everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in many of the, 
many of these things, it doesn't need to be complicated. I mean, it's pretty simple. What People understand what computers are. They understand data management on some level, right? And so it's not like this is, this is not like quantum mechanics. I mean, it should not be that complicated. It's just kind of hard to know um, how you got to where you, we are and then sort of, the, I guess, just the journey, right? The journey and sort of what actually exists as far as regulations and rules because most people don't know, and I would, and by say most, I see, I could say probably safely say everybody, and probably including those who uh, set the regulations forth and actually sign the uh, sign or pass the laws. Well, I wrote section two, which is all about meaningful use, because I knew that the average person doesn't know that meaningful use exists. They don't know about all of this metric and all of this payment having to do with so-called meaningful use of the electronic health record. And I wanted them to see what their doctor is thinking about when they're in the exam room with their doctor and why, why all the clicking and why they see the back of the doctor's head. And, you know, they had to really see the morass that the doctors are facing when you think and hope that the doctor is thinking only about you and, and what you need and listening carefully and not thinking about whether or not they can document all this stuff to get paid. Right. And I, I think that's one of the important things we took. We discussed this in, I think it was episode six, when we were uh, talking to Dr. Ken Fisher about electronic health records and how you've lost the, um, the, the focus of the, of the relationship with the physician and the patient has changed because Unfortunately, I mean, the reality is you need to be paid to whatever you're doing. I mean, you got to keep the lights on the building that you're in. And so ultimately, you are going to make sure that you accomplish that goal of getting paid. And in some ways, it's kind of sad, but the, the actual purpose for the visit is probably moves to a secondary status, certainly with the reflection to how the electronic health records are designed, because they're designed more for billing purposes than they are probably for uh, actual information that's useful for a diagnosis or treatment. Yeah, they weren't made for the treatment of patients and they weren't designed for doctors and they don't fit the workflow of uh, patients, uh, of doctors and nurses trying to take care of a patient. And that's all almost secondary. And yet, you know, you know, as a physician and I know as a nurse that when the patient is in the exam room, there are things that have to be found. There are things that have to be heard and there are things that have to be done uh, to save the patient's life, to improve the patient's life, to figure out the diagnosis, and yet this machine is in the middle and getting in the way of a lot of that. It is a distraction. Exactly. And, and I think it's important to, to remember, as you're a patient sitting in the room, every minute that's spent on something that's not related to why you're there, we'll say, you know, your stomach pain or something, uh, is a minute that's lost in the potentially something that's useful for the diagnosis or treatment ultimately of whatever your condition is. There's less ability to delve into sort of the symptoms, the uh, duration, the intensity or whatever. And so that is time that is of no value to you as a patient, obviously, but also it's going to be detrimental to ultimately how your treatment is going to work out in the end. Right. And the minutes that a doctor spends being distracted by the computer is the minutes that a doctor is not putting two and two together, including, well, how do you say what you're saying and where do you point and what's the expression on your face as the patient, right? Yeah. All of that stuff goes into, you know, I was an ER nurse. All of that stuff goes into my figuring out how quick I needed to get this, a doctor to this patient. 
because sometimes, you know, they couldn't describe it very well, but if you could just watch them, you knew there was a big problem. Oh, sure. I mean, if someone said, if you, it's like any friend you have and they, you say, how are you doing? They say, okay. Well, they might say, okay. But if you look at them, you may say, oh, they're depressed or there's something great happening. But the body language and sort of the expressions, I mean, those are, that's critical. And that's, you know, the social, normal social interaction and the way we diagnose anything and, and not even like diseases, but the fact of the, uh, the disposition of people. So well, that's what I think is important. And I heard a doctor, I mean, a doctor told me, and it's been said in other places, but this one doctor said, you know, if I listen to the patient's story and I do a good enough job listening to the patient's story, I have almost diagnosed it before I ever got to physically examining them. That's, that's the importance of listening and watching. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm going to say something very controversial now <clears throat> to all the listeners out there. So before HIPAA, we're going to just jump into HIPAA now. Uh, it was actually not okay for me to talk to you, to other people about you or your condition. It's actually standard medical ethics that I don't go around talking to people about who I'm treating and who has been in my exam room. Uh, so HIPAA, which pretty much I think is universally known by most patients, certainly most physicians in all kinds of offices, was assumed to have changed how medicine was practiced, at least from a confidentiality standpoint. And I think the first thing to know about HIPAA is it didn't change anything, right, as far as that goes. Well, it didn't actually protect privacy. It did change a lot of things, but not toward privacy, away from privacy is what happened. Right. It didn't, it didn't, what I'm saying is it didn't, it didn't make any difference as far as how I um, maintain confidentiality for patients. As a physician, you know, same as with a, you know, a lawyer and their client, they don't go around blabbering about what they were talking about in confidence. And same thing with a physician. I mean, you're not, you don't go around if your surgeon talked about all the people, you know, you did, you know, did surgery on, right? That's, that was never okay. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but certainly it was part of ethic, medical ethics was that that wasn't supposed to happen. Right. Ethics haven't changed just because of HIPAA. Right. It hasn't changed anything. Uh, it, it probably on some level, and I will grant HIPAA this, that it probably made people more aware, people who are, well, sort of, sort of the lay public, you know, recognize that that is actually, although they probably assume that, but it's made the ancillary staff more aware of, you know, making sure you don't yell someone's name across the waiting room, or if you're at a pharmacy, you know, you, you know yelling out to, you know, you know, Elma Peterson, if she's got to go get her, you know, aspirin or something like, or whatever it might be, you know, you don't, you're maybe a little more discreet. Um, but outside of that, HIPAA changed a lot of things. It relates back to the electronic health record, obviously. But um, what would you say if someone just says HIPAA is a great thing, and this is someone who you probably hear this all the time. So what do you tell, how do you tell people that HIPAA is actually not what you think it is to <laughs> probably just a lay person? And then we can even talk about physicians because I think physicians are as pretty much in the dark about it as, as patients are. Yes, and advised by attorneys in, a, in the wrong direction. But um, so what I tell people is HIPAA is not a privacy rule. It is a disclosure rule. And the, that statement that you sign on the consent form, which says, you know, that you acknowledge that you have received or read the notice of privacy practices is really a statement that you have read the notice of disclosure practices. 
that HIPAA actually has opened up the medical record. And according to the federal government, there are 2.2 million entities, entities, and a lot of people in those entities, that can have access to your medical record without your consent under HIPAA if those who hold your medical record information care to share it. And they do not have to get your consent to share it. And so that number, 2.2 million entities, which was reported in a 2010 federal rule, um, does not include all the government agencies that can also have access to your medical record if your doctor or your hospital or your clinic or your health plan decide to share the information. Um, the 2.2 million entities are uh, 700, more than 700,000 uh, entities like uh, clinics, hospitals, um, data clearing houses, health plans, radiology facilities. Those are called covered entities. So there's more than 700,000 of them. And then there's 1.5 million business associates. And these are the people who the doctor, the hospital, the clinic can contract with and share your information with for various business purposes that have nothing to do with actual clinical care. So... So I think this is real important to just think about what, what you just said. For, so it's not, when you're signing that form in the, well, it seems like everywhere, like you're the dentist or the pharmacy now, or uh, the, obviously any physician's office you go to. So when you're signing the form, you're not acknowledging that you, it's always sold, I guess, is that you're, that you're signing it in order to verify that you understand that they are not allowed to disclose your information to like, you know, other people in the waiting room. <laughs> when in fact, <laughs> That's not at all what you're signing because as with most forms in like in offices, like here's a standard form, please sign this, you know, it's where you can initiate treatment or, you know, just meet with you. No one reads those things any more than you read the Apple, you know, the Apple uh, disclosure form when it gets, you know, re-upped or any of those things that, you know, it, that you get from whatever, you know, online service you use. No one reads the terms and conditions because for one thing you got, your time is valuable. And, uh, and you just assume that there's the intentions are advantageous to you, or they're just some sort of legal protection for the other entities if they're doing something uh, that that you don't won't sue them for like you know them based for something for no reason. I guess it's kind of that's my impression. But but what you're really saying is that I understand and have read the notice that tells me that I have no privacy. Right. That is the exact opposite of what, I mean, it's total or Orwellian right? in the sense that you're basically thinking you're protecting your privacy when in fact you're saying all my data that I have, you are welcome to share it with whomever you want, who is approved in some way, right? Has some sort of, some sort of, I guess, verification process, or they understand HIPAA's rules too, but you're saying you can share it with any laboratory, any imaging well, center, any well, contractor. No, you're not, you're not saying that. You're just saying that you have read, understood, or been given. Well, so, right. Okay. Right? And then it tells you that we have the right to share it with all of these folks. So thank you very much for signing that you know that we have that right, and we don't have to get your consent to do it. Right. So it's a blanket, just here's my data. You can do what you want with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but whether you sign it or you don't sign it, they can do whatever they want. The whole thing of getting you to sign the form was to convince you that you had privacy. Essentially, most people think, and, and um, we have um, met with members of Congress and to a person, they have all said that signing this, this paper means that my data is between me and my doctor. Well, clearly, 
they've not read the form because all it says is that I understand that I have that I have no privacy. <laughs> um, so you're not giving consent to share it. You're not giving any rights. You're not you know whether you sign it or whether you don't sign it. The information can be shared under HIPAA unless there is a stronger state law. That's the only exception to the rule. So it can be shared without your consent, whether you sign it or not. The fact of getting you to sign that paper is meant to uh, to put this deception across the entire country that HIPAA means privacy when it doesn't. It's just a ruse. The whole signing is just to drum into people's heads that they have privacy when actually if they read it, they'd know that they don't. So it's just meant to convince you that you have privacy. So why, why do all these offices then insist on people signing it? Is that because they are convinced, is, or is there some regulatory rule that if you, you know, provide services, you have to have people uh, read the HIPAA notice, or is this just, right. is, is that the reason? The HIPAA rule, the so-called privacy rule, HIPAA privacy rule, which is the no privacy rule, that requires them to make a good faith effort. Those are the words, a good faith effort to get you to sign that form. Now, most of their attorneys will have told them that they must get you to sign that form, and most people will not say no because they don't know that nothing in law requires them to sign the form. And therefore, we, our organization, Citizens Council for Health Freedom, have a campaign, a nationwide campaign, to get people to not sign that form. And then to tell us what happens. Because sometimes what the clinics do is they say, if you don't sign this form, you can't be treated. And that's, that's against the federal rule because there's nothing in the rule that says that. And as a matter of fact, the federal government, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, has online a protocol for clinics and hospitals to follow when you refuse. So, so you do not have to sign this form. But, but a lot of the attorneys have not told the clinics or the hospitals this. And so the clinics and the hospitals are most afraid of a HIPAA violation. They're afraid of getting fined, you know, for millions of dollars because they didn't get the signature of every patient. And that's usually what their attorney has told them. And the attorneys are either clueless or just simplifying things. Right. Well, and I think, you know, when it comes to most attorneys and uh, if you're, if the rule is that you have to, you have to have have to perform some sort of service or provide some sort of information that if you don't have a signature, it, you know, if it's not documented that the, then it didn't happen. Right. So you could, so if someone could then, I I'm assuming the risk for, from a lawyer standpoint as well, if, if you don't have people signing all these forms, then essentially what you're doing is if someone brings a claim saying that they weren't offered this, uh, you know, this, this information, we have no way to document that we actually did. And so that's, that's our sort of way of preventing litigation, you know, I suppose is probably is probably the you can't say well that's just our common practice well if you don't have it written down anywhere then it never really happened and that's always sort of the thing they tell you about any sort of documentation with the medicine if it's not written down it didn't happen but that's why HHS has a protocol which tells the clinic to document on the piece of paper that the patient refused and as a matter of fact I recently had to deal with this in a clinic myself and the um the staff person was looking at me rather cross-eyed when I refused to do this. And then her, her co-staff person leaned over and said that she can refuse to do this. And that's why we have that little thing at the bottom of the form that you can sign to say that she refused to do it. She's like, oh. 
So sure enough, she documented that I refused to sign it. But some clinics will try to get you to write refused and initial it. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I don't do that either. I know what the protocol is. And you just follow the protocol set up by HHS and you'll be fine. So what so what HIPAA did essentially is it 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 now allows the these providers and people to, to sell patient data or not I guess I shouldn't sell say necessarily sell but to oh, they can sell it well right I mean yeah obviously ultimately they can sell it too but so what kind of data are we talking about that people have to you know the average person goes out goes to the see their doc for you know, their well their well visit or something a year they get a PSA or something what do they have to what is the concern with their data that that physician office might then do with it? So I think it's a bigger question than just one piece of data or a piece of data here and there. When you look at uh, where uh, the healthcare industry is going today, what you'll see are things like population health, which I spend an entire uh, section, chapter in the book talking about, or predictive analytics, which is also part of uh, population health. And so it's not just that there's one PSA uh, test and they could share that. It's the fact that they are creating a profile of not only the patient but the doctor. So there are two sort of um, two sort of paths here. One with the patient. So they they would like a profile of the patient. As a matter of fact, the um, I don't think you've gotten to this piece yet in the book, given what you told me about what you've read. But in the future considerations section, the owner of Epic Health, uh, Epic um, Electronic Health Records System, actually tells her user group at a user group conference that um, they need to know what you eat and how many hours you sleep and what your social environment is like. You know what your social conditions are like, and she she tells them essentially if you're uncomfortable getting this kind of information, then this isn't going to work. This isn't going to go well for you. And this this is this whole move from the Affordable Care Act and even from um, Medicare is to um, create a profile, to analyze people, to try to predict um, whether they'll be healthy or what their behaviorals will be. And so what we have here is the building up through the electronic health record of a complete dossier on every individual. And patients are, are, build, are helping to build this dossier without even knowing about it because they will go into the patient portal, which I have a, a bit of a warning about in the front part of the book, into the patient portal, and they will start putting in their own data, you know, sort of like adding to this without any idea of knowing how broadly this data is going to, can be shared, how it can be put in the new national medical record system that's being established, how it can be put on the health information exchange, all these folks that can access it, this 1.5 million business associates. And by the way, a business associate is an entity. So it could be, you know, like the hugest corporate building ever is one of the business associates with all those people in there doing data analytics and looking at you and coming up with a profile of you, you know, for their own purposes. But the other, uh, the other part about this is profiling the physician. And I do not think that patients would really enjoy the idea that physicians are being profiled in order to tie their hands, to pay them less, to give them black marks uh, if they don't follow certain protocols. The, the electronic health record can track all of this, can do all the statistics on, on how often the doctor 
follows the protocols that the hospital wants the doctor to follow or the health plan wants the doctor to follow or whoever populated the electronic health record with treatment protocols and put some protocols on there and, and not other treatments on there. So making it more difficult for a doctor to actually do what they might want to do for the patient. And right. so all of this can be tracked and, and, it, and it can be detrimental to both the patient and the doctor. And this is what we discussed with uh, Dr. Cod on population health versus you know individual health uh, a couple episodes ago, where we're, where we're now we're no longer it changes the focus of how you're how you're approaching each patient, algorithmic medicine I guess you could call it, or but it's uh, it's because you're not you're not worried about the individual you're you're more worried about the larger community you may you may have uh, acceptable losses I guess you'd say. In some ways, and you know, certain treatments can be deemed too expensive for the system overall, and that's and that's kind of where this sort of data data gathering, I suppose, would be useful in that sort of sense. If you're a large government entity that you're controlling all the funding, for instance, you know, and so or I guess you, other third party payers, right? So for as far as insurance companies, and when you discuss meaningful use earlier, meaningful use is essentially where you have a certain amount of data that you have to collect on patients or certain things you have to, you know, criteria you have to meet in order to get paid certain amounts. If you are above the median or below the median, your payments can be either, you can be either given a bonus or um, uh, what's the opposite of bonus? Penalty. <laughs> a penalty. There you go. Thanks. A penalty uh, percentage of your, of your reimbursement from the insurers. Uh, and so that will obviously drive behavior, which may or may not be helpful to you as a patient. So that's right. What the last thing that you want is the doctor working for someone else when he's in the exam room with you, right? Because then he's trying to think of how his treatment of you is going to affect his own income, his own scores, his own ratings. And th that's not the basis on which you want, that's not where you want the physician's mind. And that's not where you want them to be deciding what kind of treatments you as a patient will be able to get. There could be something that's like the perfect thing for you, but it's outside of the acceptable protocols. And so is it more important for the doctor to stay in the accepted protocols for their score and for their payment or to treat you with the one thing that is really going to make you better? Right. And, and I guess this go, this all drives back to the fact that we have a really goofy healthcare system in this country where we have a third party system that, that pay, makes all the payments. And so, you know, if it was a if it was a uh, other relationship like most uh, commercial relationships you have with anyone else, with any other business, pretty much, you're obviously the interest for the for the physician in this case would be would be I mean there's obviously some comp compensatory considerations as far as testing exams or whether you can operate on someone because you get paid by doing stuff, but it, but there's there is not a uh, but your behavior is not driven largely by people who are not the patient. And so if you get, you can, you can have a better relation, you can have a better uh, reputation through, um, through appropriate treatment of a single patient versus in a population where you get with a large third party payer. And so the, the, the incentive system is, is all messed up when you have this, this other person in the room, like you said, um, it's like if you were going to get your car fixed and the dealership or the, you know, Ford has, cares what you're doing with your car and will, you know, change the way they're repairing your car all the time because it's something that's advantageous to them. Right. And I, I think it might be section five of the book that talks about the other thing that I think is just really awful uh, regarding how the data is used. And that's to conduct research at the bedside. 
So, you know, these folks who would like to figure out what might, you know, be more cost effective, who are now, you know, when you're, when you go to the hospital, you think the sole purpose for you being there is for you to get better, but other people might have purposes of you being part of an experiment. <laughs> yeah, right. When you, when you cannot protect yourself, you know, this is the thing about a patient. A patient is vulnerable by nature, and I don't care if that patient has a sore throat and a strep, you know, a strep throat, or if that patient is comatose. The fact of the matter is, this this patient cannot diagnose themselves. They can come up pretty close, but right, they, they don't have the tools to diagnose themselves. They don't have the training to diagnose themselves. They don't have the capacity to heal themselves. They can't order the treatments, and so they're completely dependent on the physicians and to make the right decisions and the nurses to take care of them. They are vulnerable, and yet they are being experimented on, and yet their doctors are having their their uh, hands tied, and the nurses are finding that they're spending most of their time in the computerized medical record rather than even having time to talk to the patient. You know, this is the thing about being a patient. It's the one time in your life, if there's no other time in your life, where you become dependent and you lose your independence and you have to have professionals who have your best interests at heart and that's why medical ethics don't go away for any reason and if they do then you know we're just all in trouble yeah and i think we had this discussion many times in the show where the the reason you get into the business the reason i get into the business of medicine is for that intimate patient physician relationship that you have that you have someone who's vulnerable, someone who is who is uh, you know needs your skills, and you can provide that. But you also have you develop a relationship with that patient. I mean, mine as an anesthesiologist, mine is a very brief relationship. My wife's a primary care pediatrician, so hers is a lifelong, or at least you know through your formative years of your um, growing up. And so that is, and that's why we get into the business. It's not, I mean, it's yes, it's a career, but and it's challenging and those things. But the fact that you have those that personal relationship. That's why we always get in it. And if you take that away, it makes the job less fun for us and less and um, less rewarding and, you know, contributes to burnout, all sorts of things. And it makes it less, uh, it, it worse for the patient. I mean, it's clearly that because that's the personal contact is an important aspect of medicine. And if you take that away, I think you take away a lot of the healing aspect of things which are hard to sort of quantify. Right. It's hard to do healthcare by robotics. You there you might be able to figure out certain things that you can do, but humans are so complex and there's so many things that can go even into one condition or go into deciding a treatment for one patient, which could work for 98% of the other patients, but it doesn't work for this patient. And so it's just so many little things to be known that it's very hard uh, to quantify, as you say, but you know, a lot of the businesses who are really, I think the electronic health record allows the corporations that are invested in the data and the dollars that they can get from the doctor and the patient relationship, right? I think that the health, the uh, electronic health record allows them to make uh, patients and doctors cogs in their profiteering system because they need the patient and the doctor. Otherwise, there isn't a healthcare system for them to, you know, take money away from. Mm -hmm. uh, but their whole plan is to tie the ha doctor's hands and to profile the patient and to use everybody's data all for their own purposes. So they need the patient and the doctor, but their goal is not to help the patient or to help the doctor help the patient. 
It's yeah. all about helping themselves. Right. And I would say one way to say it, you're helped almost incidentally in the system. I mean, incidentally, yes, that's a great way to put it. But not all doctors, you know, right? Doctors are fighting this system. Oh, and I think, I think, I think most people within the system know it's lousy in, in the way that's being, it's it's situated right now. And I think most people are resisting on some level, some more than others. It just kind of, you know, just depends on sort of where, what you are and, you know, what your role is and, and how you resist. So the, so the concern w- with HIPAA then, so HIPAA says your data can be shared just so you know, and here you can, we'll tell you that it can be shared. You can sign this and say that you understand it or not. doesn't matter to us. Either way, it's going to get shared right. yeah, against, you know, against your wishes probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when it comes to the data itself, I mean, I guess the concern with you, if you're just, if your data is just out there is obviously that someone get, get, get a hold of the data who shouldn't have the data. I mean, <laughs> who's going to use it for, for ill purposes, like your social security number or your birthday, all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously that's something that's got to be a big concern, right? I mean, how secure is this data going to be? Well, this data is not going to be secure. Uh, just for instance, if we went against all, I mean, if we went beyond all of those who have permissible access under HIPAA, those 2.2 million entities plus government, then there's just the fact of putting it onto servers, digitizing it, has made it vulnerable to the hackers of the world, the ransom, the ransomware manufacturers, right, mm-hmm. uh, who, who want to uh, lock up your records until you pay, Um so it's vulnerable to all of those. It's also, all you have to think about is how easy would it be to take 4,000 paper medical records from a doctor's office? Just think about it. 4,000, right? But in the, you know, in the click of a button and a, or a few clicks of a button, right, you can download 40,000 or 400,000 records onto something that you can walk out of the door in your pocket, and yeah. so that is how that's digitizing has just made it so much more vulnerable. And I do talk about that in the book and just talk about some of the, some of the chaos that has happened in the hospitals when everything's been shut down or um, when a, um, a, a, an electronic health record company sells themselves to another company and that the second company charges twice, three, four, five times as much. And this, uh, this little clinic you know, can't pay the cost. And so then they take the clinic's access away from the records, right? So this is another thing that people don't think about with electronic health records. Oftentimes, they're not sitting in the doctor's office. They're on a server farm or in the cloud, right? Right. At electronic health record vendors like Big Epic in, in Wisconsin that has, you know, like something like 65% of Americans have some part of their medical record at Epic. And it's not in their doctor's office. It's at Epic's headquarters their server farm (laughs) and so they have control of the data they can choose not to give it back uh or make it more difficult to get back um if if you want to if the doctor wants to change from epic to cerner for instance right they could make it more difficult and who can tell what they keep you have to have an auditor to go in there I mean, so, you know, it's not even like the records are sitting at your doctor's office or in the hospital in most cases. Many, many times they're, quote, in the cloud, which just means they're on somebody else's server and under somebody else's control. So the health, the HIPAA, the Health Information, what is it, Personal Protection Act? No, the Health Information. Patient Portability Act, right? Health Insurance Portability Act. 
And Accountability Act. And Accountability. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot um, of people think there's a P in there for privacy, but there's not, not one. Right. That passed in 1996. So we're now 22 years into this law. Yeah. Uh, well, it's longer than I've even been in uh, since medical school, which I don't mm-hmm. know if that's... Uh, <clears throat> so it's been around forever. What's... What what is your goal at this point? Because you can, as you said, we can have everybody opt out and not sign this form. Doesn't change anything, except obviously it changes awareness. People will understand what HIPAA really is, as opposed to what it what they thought it was. What's your goal, uh, and what are your your hopes in in um, in fighting back against, I guess, the the loss of your privacy? So, because we consider privacy to be the foundation of freedom, and so for many people, it's they 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 think, well, there's there's really nothing in my medical record that I'm worried about. I would say back to them, have you read your medical record? Have you actually read what it says about you? Because people are very surprised sometimes when they get a copy of their medical record. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, privacy is about control. So if you protect people's privacy, you protect their individual control. And so even if they're not concerned with privacy, they might be very, very, very concerned about who has control over their doctor, who has control over whether they get profiled or not. And so it's really the privacy battle is really much more about control than it is about privacy. And we say who he who holds the data makes the rules. And so all of these people want your data because they want to make the rules with your data. So when it comes to HIPAA, Um, Part of it is uh, building public awareness, because I think it was President Abraham Lincoln who said something like, you know, once you get the public behind something, the politicians will follow. Mm -hmm. That's a paraphrase. Um, But so while the American public thinks that HIPAA protects their privacy, they'd never want to get rid of it. So this book, as well as our HIPAA, our Refuse to Sign the HIPAA Form campaign uh, and other things that we do are all about getting the public to understand that HIPAA is the exact opposite of what they think it is and therefore we should get rid of HIPAA. So our ultimate goal is to, it can be uh, one of two things really, we can rescind HIPAA, we can get rid of the rule and uh, go back to um, the legal um, requirement to hold the patient's data confidential unless you had actual permission. Or we can leave HIPAA in place, but then we can put in a brand new law that says, notwithstanding HIPAA, this new law says that you have to get the patient's consent for sharing of the data for all sorts of reasons, like it used to be. Because sometimes getting rid of a law gets very, very difficult. But the right administration could rescind the entire rule. I have no doubt that there would be lawsuits because people want this data so bad they'd be willing to do forever to try and keep it in place. You know, but but you you have to keep uh, moving in this direction if you want freedom, because if we keep HIPAA in, in place and nobody has control over their data and doctors hands are being tied because outsiders are scoring them badly and paying them badly and profiling everybody, then we will never have freedom and we will likely end up with a socialized healthcare system with the doctors all under the government control through the data. Because um, one of the things that we say is you can't have a national health uh, system or a national, like a socialized medicine system where it's, you know, under the national government, right? You can't have a national healthcare system if you don't have a national health information system. And HIPAA is helping to build uh, a, a huge national health information system. Yeah. And so, 
we want to we want freedom for patients and doctors. That's our ultimate goal. The other thing that can happen to upset this, I forgot about about this, is that once legislators, state legislators, figure out, uh, just like members of Congress who still think that HIPAA protects privacy, <laughs> which is so funny, um, once state legislators figure this out, they can start passing real privacy laws. They can put those laws in at the state level. And according to HIPAA itself, those state laws have to be followed. And so we could essentially get rid of HIPAA state by state by state by state, as long as state legislators start to bring back real consent. What, and so you are the founder of the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, which co-founder. is spe- a co-founder, sorry, uh, which is spearheading this, this effort. And as you mentioned, sort of this, from this federalist um, strategy of going to the state level, do you have model legislation uh, somewhere there that a state legislator could could grab and and it drop in a drop in a bin and start put it for a state law? Our model legislation really is the Minnesota state law. Um, Minnesota has the strongest state law in the country, and it uh, and big business and big health and big data are all now trying to get rid of it. They're I'm sure right now trying to get rid of it. They tried last session. They're going to try next session. Um, and so, but it really just, it, uh, it has consent requirements for payment treatment, healthcare operations, and research, and several more things, military or national health or whatever, national, it's not health, national um, security. So there are eight things that Minnesota requires actual patient consent for uh, before they, the information can be shared. And that really is model legislation for the country. How did Minnesota end up with that? Are you aware of how they ended with such strong patient protection acts? They had this um, before our, our organization has been around for 24 years and they had it before that. And now it has been a struggle to keep it. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so I wasn't here when it was put into place, but it's a, it's a good law. So someone must, someone must have been prescient enough to kind of think that this might have been in some way important, yes, I guess. That's right. And it has, it's the interesting thing is that uh, privacy, uh, medical privacy is bipartisan uh, on both the pro and the con. And so our organization, which is considered a conservative organization, um, has worked with Democrats and worked against Republicans. And we've worked with Republicans and against Democrats. It really does just kind of depend on who's in power at the time and who the committee chairs are and whether they have a penchant for privacy. And then, and then we have had great wins with Democrats and great wins with Republicans. And so it's really bipartisan. Yeah. I find um, when it comes to fourth amendment issues, which is sort of like a fourth amendment um, issue in some ways, it's really hard to put it in the left, right. I mean, it, it, it does depend almost in whoever's not in power seems to be a stronger advocate for fourth amendment where they're not getting those uh, lobbyist dollars from the, the businesses uh, to try and maintain that control. And well, I think that you will see, at least in the book, it's very clear, I think, in the book and the history about how responsible both Democrats and Republicans are for okay. loss of privacy and the mandate that everything be digitized. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, when the act, all these different acts were passed, I mean, it was Democratic Congresses, Republican Congresses, Democratic presidents, Republican presidents, every sort of combination, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of been a slow, a slow trudge where we are, and it's, it's been consistent throughout the years. And so it really, it hasn't like had a big giant spurt, I guess. I mean, some of these big laws, but from right. a regulatory standpoint, it's, it's been pretty, pretty even. Everyone's guilty. 
May I just say um, that for your listeners, we would love you to buy a book. We're almost sold out of our first printing. And we, um, but you can find it at bigbrotherintheexamroom.com. And no matter what Amazon says, if you go on Amazon and it might say that it's sold out, it'll, it'll charge you $300 for the book. That's kind of funny. Uh, just go to bigbrotherintheexamroom.com and that takes you directly to our warehouse. And, it's, um, and if we are, if we're totally out, then they will do a back order. So, okay. Um, <laughs> well, and three hundred dollars is actually not bad for some of these large textbooks you might use in college. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just can't imagine anybody buying it for three hundred dollars. And if somebody does, somebody is making out like a bandit on our book. <laughs> you need a, yeah, you need to rate jack up your price. You're not charging. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, I guess if you want to find out more, uh, they can obviously go to the Citizens Council for Health Freedom. And they can they buy this book, which again I've read part of it and it's excellent, and I'm looking forward to finishing it at some point here in the next couple of weeks. Um, where else should people find stuff from Twyla Braze? That's uh, cchfreedom.org, cchfreedom.org. And on there, there will be uh, petitions. There's also a uh, your HIPAA story for people who refuse and, and what happens, good or bad. <laughs> uh, but all that can be found at cchfreedom.org, including a link to the Big Brother in the exam room Um a link to order the book. How about, are you in Twitter? Facebook? Oh yeah, sorry. Yes. We're in Twitter under my name as well as uh, CCH Freedom. And then we're on Facebook under my name, Twyla Braves, um, as well as we have a group and a page under CCH Freedom. And we also have the wedge of health freedom for third-party payer-free doctors and patients to find each other. And that's at jointhewedge.com. 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 Well, thank you so much. All these links will be available on the show notes page, which is going to be at the Paradox, A-R-A-D-O-C-S. And your last name is, well, your name is spelled T-W-I-L-A-B-R-A-S-E. Correct. Yeah. So again, these will all be available on the Paradox show notes page. Thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me. I appreciate it. Learning a little bit out of HIPAA, and hopefully everyone has a little bit better understanding that HIPAA does not protect your privacy. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.